Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 90 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Digital Federal Credit Union, better known as DCU. And every dollar counts more than ever. And DCU understands that. And they have got ways to help your money work harder for you. Like if you love your car but not your car and auto loan, you can refinance with DCU and get back in the driver's seat with a lower monthly payment. They offer the same low rates to their members for new and used vehicles. And if you want to find out what DCU could mean to you and your car and auto loan, well, just refinance with them. All you need to do is visit dcu.org for more information. Refinance your auto loan and get the same rate for a new or used car with DCU. Find them online at dcu.org. I also want to put a plug in for the Mistress Carrie Backstage Pass on Patreon. If you head to patreon.com slash mistresscarrie, you can get a backstage pass, which will give you extra stuff, photos, blog posts. You can submit questions for podcast interviews, get discounted merchandise in the online store at mistresscarrie.com, access to exclusive monthly live streams, and you get a ton of access to free concert tickets. Click the Patreon button at mistresscarry.com. And I want to say hi to Linda, Jamie, Heather, Kim, Trisha, Penny, Dave, Michael, Karen, Mark, and Carol. Thank you guys so much for all having a Mistress Carry backstage pass. I have been looking forward to this interview for a while. I've seen the name Jelly Roll floating around for a long time, but I could never quite figure out what kind of artist he was. Because I heard friends that love hip-hop music talking about him. I heard friends that love country music talking about him. And as of late, my rock friends talking about him. And the reason why is that Jelly Roll is a little bit of everything. His latest album, Ballads of the Broken, is available now. And once again, he's heading back on the road on tour. And I'm not just talking about a solo tour either. He's hitting some of the biggest festivals in the country this year. His tour dates start on March 31st in Buffalo, New York, and the following day, he's headlining the Palladium in Worcester on April 1st. If you don't know who Jelly Roll is right now, by the end of this episode, you're going to be a fan. So allow me to introduce you to Jelly Roll. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan. You're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown. You're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Well, hello. Good morning. How are you? 
I'm good. It's about 4.30, 4.45 in Nashville, and I just woke up about two hours ago. I'm fixing to eat breakfast. <laughs> so you're a, night, you're a night owl and a vampire like Jonathan Davis from Corn. Yes, it is It is the worst, actually. we. Uh, I tell people I got the sleeping schedule of a meth addict. Just <laughs> horrible. I went to sleep at like 6.30 this morning or something. It's bad. We record at night, though. We're working on the new album already, so... We're just been to the studio every night to like four or five in the morning. I have a ton to ask you and a ton to talk to you about. The first thing I got to ask you, though, what do I call you? Can I call you Jelly? Is that cool? Oh, yeah. That's what my mama calls me. <laughs> my mom does not call me Mistress Carrie. <laughs> yeah, my mama gave me the name Jelly, so it just kind of stuck. Where did it come from? I was a fat kid. <laughs> I was a fat kid, and then I spent the rest of my life trying to grow into the name. <laughs> and now you gotta thank her. Down, you, know? you gotta <laughs> thank her for the name now. <laughs> yeah, I've just been jelly my whole life, so my mama still calls me that to this day. Um, you said you're working on a new album, and my brain is trying to wrap itself around your work schedule because you've released how many albums in ten years? Do you oh, know? Over thirty. I don't even know where to start with that. You've released more albums in 10 years than four bands together in their entire career. Oh, dude, I've always had this mentality to write music like a country writer because the songwriters, I'm from Nashville, and the songwriters in this town write one to two songs a day, five days a week, 340 days a year, right? <laughs> so I was like, I want to write music like that. I want to tour like a rock and roll band. Sorry. Oh, there we go. Hold on. Let me put the do not disturb thing on the phone. I forgot to do that problem. <laughs> here. There we go to solve that problem. Um, yeah, I want to tour like a rock and roll band because my favorite rock bands did like 200 shows a year. And I wanted to release music like a rapper. And I grew up in the hip hop era where you'd get a new mixtape from a rapper every three months. You know, you go to the local record shop or mom and pop or the local gas station in the South. You can buy mixtapes at gas stations in the South, old BPs and shells and little off-brand gas stations. And, you know, new, your rap, favorite rapper would have a new mixtape every, like, three months. So I was like, I just wanted to be, that's just kind of was my approach to the music business, was write a bunch of songs, tour a whole bunch, and release a bunch. Well, you bring up Nashville. Um, growing up in Boston, I had never spent any time there. And just last year, I visited for the first time for this big rock podcast convention and the more artists that I talk to the more I'm shocked how much rock music is getting made in Nashville nowadays because for a long time the assumption was well that's just where country music lives but it seems like rock has kind of taken over it is man Nashville is obviously country music is what it's known for but Nashville is just a music driven town you know it's a lot of live music here if you've ever been to Austin on like 4th Street or 5th, you know, it's that times 30 when you go down to Broadway. I mean, you're talking about you throw a rock here and you can hit a guy who not only plays the guitar, but can shred. You know, these dudes are it, I've just probably more musicians per capita than anywhere in the world. I That was why I loved it so much. I loved that the whole city was built on live music, songwriting, artistry, 
And just driving around, kind of getting the lay of the land and going to some of the clubs, I was like, well, no wonder all the bands are moving here. This is cool. This is it, dude. It's a beautiful town, man. It's it. It's, I mean, it's thriving, too. Nashville is growing. And I just love just how much music's getting wrote here every day. That's just my speed. Um, you talk about the different genres of music. And I grew up in a time where the music that you listened to was like your identity, right? That you wore the vest with the patches, the bands. That it, it said something about you. You're such a combination of all these different things that your music can't be put into a category which could be one of two things one that you have no home or two that you find a home everywhere and you've kind of found a home everywhere right right which has been a blessing because it started with no home right it started with being homeless and it's like i think i grew up around the same era where if you wore a Marilyn manson t-shirt to school you better not let them find you listening to eminem See privately. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. Right? Yes. You know, and I think the cool thing about what's happened now is the world has kind of opened up to like my daughter's a great example of a kid whose playlist goes from Ariana Grande to Cardi B to Lincoln Park, right? To um, you know, some modern rock band. Like it's insane to me how much it'll shuffle. And how acceptable. I mean, that kid has band T-shirts all the way from Metallica to uh, Katy Perry. Right. You know, it's just she's all over the place. And I think that's the new generation of listener. I think that that's cool, too, because. It was kind of like the first time that I played Louder Than Life was the second time I played it. But Ice Cube went on right before Hailstorm, who went on right before GNR. And I just remember watching that show going, this is awesome. And I just remember watching this same main stage crowd that's sitting there waiting for Guns N' Roses singing every single word of Ice Cube. You know, and I was just like, this is dope. I just remember how much, how good that felt for me. And it's crazy because I think back in the 50s, 60s, and parts of the 70s, music was like that. Yes. Where you could listen to a lot of different stuff. And then somewhere around the mid 70s and towards the early 80s, it became this thing that defined you. And once you were in that lane in that box, that's where you stayed. Right. No, that that's exactly what it was. And I think that it's cool now that, you know, people and I think it's also helping bands who have different sounds because it got even deeper. It got to the point where like the heavy dudes didn't like the softer dudes in rock music. Right. And it just started to become just nobody wins when we begin to put things when tribalism takes over. Right. When tribalism takes over, everybody loses. You know, you marginalize something that's. You know, listen, we're already marginalized enough that there's, to me, there's good music fans and people that listen to shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> you can't afford to divide the good music fans up any more than they already are. You know, it's like we're already against the odds of like trash making it. Like there's a lot of really bad music that's getting consumed these days. Well, technology you know? makes it easy to be a shitty musician and I talk to musicians about it all the time. I talked to Slash about it recently. I talked to Miles Kennedy about it. That with Pro Tools, it's like the catfishing of audio recording. You can make anybody sound good. Make anybody sound good. It doesn't go over live. Any kid can put a snippet on TikTok that goes viral. 
you know, and it's just, but it's just, it's insane. So in a time where that there's so much of that happening, we can't afford to divide the fans who are actually care about good music because this song's not heavy enough for their taste. You know, it's just sad. I knew that this was going to be a really interesting conversation because my husband is a massive country music fan. And I, it it hurts my soul because that's not my thing. And when I told him that I was going to interview you, he lost it because to him, you're a country artist and he right. was shocked that I knew who you were. And to <laughs> me, I was shocked that he knew who you were. Yes. There and, we go. And he was like, wait, you know who he is? And I was like, how the fuck do you know who he is? <laughs> I think that's like my favorite thing about what we do too, is that we find that to happen often. Now we bring two different worlds together you know and they're so similar anyways i was talking to a guy at radio recently and i don't want to disclose who it was but he said this and it blew my mind he said do you know what my channel's biggest competition is in town and i was like the other rock channel you know because they were one form, you know one form whatever i was like he's like nope the country channel is my biggest competition. I said, really? He said, yeah, because the data shows that they'll flip from the rock channel to the country channel, or they'll flip from the country channel back to the rock channel. And I was like, that makes so much sense. Like when I did Rockville, <clears throat> I remember walking through that crowd to go get like a, like a something to eat or I was like super drunk and I didn't want to go to catering. So I just <laughs> went out there and got something to eat. And I was talking to a lot of people and I remember looking around like this audience looks like, something I would see when I played the mud park. You know what I mean? Like it's the exact same crowd. Sometimes it's a little different, obviously, like when you get to like super country bars, you know, because that's got a different kind of a look, just like when you go to like heavy metal shows that have a different look. Yeah. But in general, man, I think the music connects. And I think that's what we do that makes it so special is that we connect on both sides and God willing, we'll continue to write songs and connect with everybody and doesn't offend. And that's the hardest part, right? Is that you never let anybody feel like you're betraying them because you're their guy. Well, I want to talk to you, if you don't mind. I want to go back to where this all started with you because your story is so fascinating to me that you have ended up on the rock charts out of Nashville this unlikely rock star all of a sudden. So were you born in Nashville? Like, like, tell me where it all started. It's crazy. You say that it's still just so surreal to me. <laughs> yeah. And no, I was born right here in Nashville, Tennessee. I was born at Baptist hospital. My mother was born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee. My father was born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, my father's father was born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee. We're like a long lineage of Tennesseans. Are they a long Um, lineage of musicians? What did they do? No, no, I broke the mold. My mother sang, but, you know, just around the house. She never like tried to pursue singing or she didn't even do karaoke, but she was very passionate about music being an influence in our household. Um, You know, my father would sing at church, but he wasn't, you know, it wasn't nobody really was. We didn't have anybody. We didn't have a family member to play the guitar at Christmas or nothing. You know, we were just just very unmusical family. And I, I don't know what it was for me. It just connected. Writing lyrics is where it started. Just the process of writing out feelings. 
I tell people, you might not believe this now, but I was not always as articulate as I am now. <laughs> and for years, I couldn't find my wordings the right way. So I would write stuff down, you know. And it's funny because I watched my daughter go through that phase a few years ago where my, my wife, who's raised her as her own, would be like, Bailey, just whatever you're trying to say, go write it down. And Bailey would go write it, and it'd be so much easier for Bailey to come with a presentation. My wife's seen early that Bailey would get frustrated trying to articulate her words, so she'd write it out. And the cool thing is, the more I wrote, the more I became good at expressing myself vocally, verbally, anyways. So yeah, I just started by writing songs, and I'd come to the kitchen, but Mama, listen to this one, and I, you know, I'd rap it for, or try to sing it, or whatever. And she was always—I think the biggest gift I had was my mother and father were extremely encouraging. Um, I have a theory about someone's musical journey that there are two eras of your musical life. Hello, Kitty. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, it's Stu Cat. Um, is that there's the music that you get gifted from your parents, your older brother, the cool uncle. And then there's a line in the sand where you decide, okay, I have now discovered this music, this artist, this song, and this is mine. What right. What were those two eras of music like for you? Well, I think that what had happened to me was I had a sister who listened to nothing but rock music. Like nothing. But this is back whenever that you were, the music you listened to is who you were. This is, this is what my sister listened to, nothing but rock music. And I had a brother who listened to nothing but rap music. I mean, I mean, literally, he was the hip, he was the hip hop guy. I'm sorry, Steve Cat knows I'm on camera. What's the name of the cat? You have like one of those hairless like Sphinx cats. Yeah, his name's Studio Cat. Get away from my food. Love you, buddy. No, that kitty. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, yeah. My, I always told my wife I would like. I used to get drunk and I'd just joke with my wife and be like, I want a cat, a hairless one, and I want to put it at the studio and I want to name it Studio Cat. So for Christmas two years ago, she got me Studio Cat. He even had a little, he had a tie on and a collar that said Studio Cat on it. It was the cutest thing ever. But then we did some research and found out that, you know how cats are extremely independent? Yeah. Not hairless cats. They're extremely codependent. I thought it'd be cool to have a Studio Cat because, you know, you just change the litter box and put food there and it can stay there by itself at night and over the weekend sometimes. But because that's how cats are. Right. Not this cat. We found out that these cats get extremely depressed if they don't have constant companionship. So Studio Cat has ended up being House Cat, but we still <laughs> call him Stu. But uh, yeah, he's he's a piece of our house. It's uh, everybody in the house has their own animal. It's kind of how this works. And he ended up being Bailey's, even though he's mine or they got him for me. He sleeps with Bailey every night because my wife has a dog she loves more than everybody in the house, including me. And he is the king of our bed. And there's no, there's not room for him and the cat. <laughs> But yeah, so my sister, my brother listened to nothing but rap music. And my mother was like Motown or country, you know, and my father listened to like singer songwriter stuff and jazz. So I just remember that every time I would get in somebody's car, I would be hearing the polar opposite of what I was hearing in the other person's car. And I had a really loving family that we're still a real loving family. One of my brothers lives with me. My niece helps nanny our daughter. She lives with us. You know what I mean? We're super tight family. And, uh, I just picked up a little bit along the way. And I think that was probably my biggest influences. Now, I think the first one that became mine was rap because I didn't think I could sing. So I, I didn't, I didn't, I couldn't find my voice, but I knew I could rap. Right. So it's like, 
immediately I went to writing rap lyrics because they were just so much easier to convey than, you know, I, I couldn't get singing lessons or nothing. But yeah, that's kind of how, and I think that's kind of part of the music that I bring to the table now is I'm so influenced by so many different things. My daddy's favorite singer songwriter was James Taylor. You know, my mother was a big Motown and oldies fan. My brother listened to nothing but, you know, Tupac or UGK or, outcast or three six mafia and you know i remember me and my sister would go buy a record every week a rock record and listen to it together and by the time i'm 14 or 15 she'd let me hit the joint a couple times in the car and we'd listen to the whole album together you know and to this day i'll still go see my sister every now and then and we'll smoke a joint and listen to old rock music you know that's just her her speed her daughter actually ended up being the second musician in our family plays the guitar and sings too so my niece is a player i was wondering where that strange combination of all of those flavors, how they all kind of ended up squashed into your music. Cause it's not a normal story, especially the hip hop stuff in Nashville. Not really, oh, yeah. not really the Mecca for rap there. It was, you know what it was for us? Um, I think it was more of an outlaw spirit for us. Cause we were like afraid of country music. We hated being called country. Even though now that I've traveled the country, I'm pretty fucking country, right? Like it took me, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. but it took me traveling to figure that out. Cause you know, back then we were like, y'all just think we're all country music and hillbillies and hoedown. And now I look and I'm like, we are all just a bunch of hillbillies and hoedown. But it's like, you know, when you're, when you're 12 or 13, you know, but uh, for what, I don't know what it was about my brother. He just got into hip hop, man. It just drugged me through it with him. And we had a, he had a friend that had put out like his first like cassette tape of him rapping and my brother played it for me. And I've always been a, if I knew somebody who did something, I could do it guy. Uh, I think I heard Shaquille O'Neal say it last night. I was watching the Shaq and Kobe interview or Kobe said it. Uh, he said, nobody's ice is colder than mine. <laughs> and that was always my mentality. Right. You know, it was like, Oh, that dude can do it. I, he can write a song. I can write a song, you know? And that was it. But yeah, I've, to this day in the studio, they call me a human jukebox. You know, I'll hear a beat or a melody and somebody will say something. I'll be like, yeah, that, just, that reminds me of old, this such and such Motown record. Now reference the record it reminds me of. And I'm like, how did you get that out of that? And I'm like, I don't know, just years of listening to different kind of musics. They say that um, the musical part of the brain is also the part of the brain that does language and math. Do you have any ability? with those things too? Does that theory I'm, hold true to you? I would consider myself well-spoken, uh, <laughs> but I wouldn't, I don't think I could be good at taking a language class. Cause I'll still, I'll still fuck up a there and there every <laughs> now and then. <laughs> but, Are you good yeah, with math? Does, oh yeah. No, I can do math. Yeah. I'm pretty good at math. My favorite math story to tell is my niece had just finished college and she was helping Bailey with a math question one night. My, that's our daughter. And uh, they couldn't figure it out. And, you know, I'm the unassuming dad. That My daughter, she does not think like it's it's, it's humbling for me because she does not think I'm cool. She thinks I am full of shit. Right? <laughs> so I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, you got the coolest dad on earth. And she's like, whatever. But I'm like, Bailey, if you need help with that, just let me know. She's like, you don't know how to do this. I'm like, all right, kid. I walk over there and did the math question for him, you know. And she was like, what? And I was like, I just told you, man. Just I always tell her this. I said, just because I don't do something doesn't mean I can't. It just means that I'm old and don't want to do it. <laughs> I was like, but I can do it if I have to. Well, old age shows you that 
you don't have to do everything because it's called delegating. Yes. For, yes. Yeah. I'm so glad my wife's sitting here right now. They'll come in and bust my balls because we'll be doing something as a family and I won't be doing nothing. And I, I teach Bailey all the time. I'm like, Bailey, this is called supervising. Right. I said, what you don't know about that is it's actually the highest paid person at the job site. I was like, don't be confused. I'm not swinging a hammer. I'm supervising right now. This is a big job. <laughs> Well, when you talk about your upbringing and your family, at, at some point along the way, and you've been very vocal about this, it, like literally in the description <clears throat> of all your social media, the first thing it says is like recovering drug addict. You're so open about the struggles that you had along the way, but coming from the upbringing you have, that's not a normal story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's... uh. I'm just, I just, we, as I've gotten older, I've realized that emotional intelligence is the best thing that a person can possess. And a lot of that comes with sorting through your own emotions. You know what I mean? And to me, it's just about being honest and vulnerable. And me and my wife have this joke. We tell people that when she met me, I was a really fat drug addict that was probably going to kill himself. And now I'm a slightly smaller alcoholic and we're making baby steps. <laughs> so it's been an improvement, you know? Um, and it's just about being honest with people, man, just being vulnerable. And I never would have guessed that my story would be so many people's story. And I'm just so glad that's been the case. Well, I, I think, think music has a healing power. That's what I was going to music- say that you're in the right place to tell these stories because music has that way of of making people feel like they're not alone. You saying the word making people feel to me is the single most important job I have as a songwriter. Some music's meant to be heard. Some music's meant to be felt. I don't judge the people who make music that's heard. Just don't judge me for making music that's meant to be felt. felt. And that's my goal is I want to evoke, I have three minutes. This is the greatest gift of life. And I've said this a couple of times, but this is, if there's ever a quote of mine that I hope lives forever, it's this one. As a songwriter, we are gifted with the opportunity to give people three minutes to help them through the worst day of their life, the best day of their life, the saddest moment of their life, the, the, the funniest moment of their life, the greatest party night of their life, the best memory they've ever made. We have three minutes to try to help them with that. I have three minutes to help somebody deal with the traumatic experience or to help somebody go out and enjoy a Friday night with their husband or wife or to help somebody. And I never take the, that for granted that I know how important these three minutes are. It's not just three minutes. There's, there's so many times songs have helped those three minutes have helped me through the roughest patches of my life. And I don't understand people that aren't like that. Like there are music people, like there are people that like music and then there are music people, people that like music, you know, they get in the car on the way to work, they put the radio on. Oh yeah, that song's pretty cool. Then I think there's people like you and I that literally define moments of their life based on the album they just bought, the song they heard at the time, it literally is etched into your DNA and you can't imagine life without it. And not everybody is like that. And those songs will be so special. And they're not always just the sad ones. 
me and my wife had left a Yellow Wolf and Deftone show in Las Vegas, Nevada. I had asked her to marry me on that stage. My buddy Yellow Wolf brought me on stage. I asked my wife to be my wife on that stage. And when we walked off that stage, we said, fuck it, let's do it tonight. And we got in a car. And I remember being intoxicated and somebody driving us down Vegas to downtown to the courthouse right before it closed. We pulled up like 1157 to get our marriage license. And we were blaring Bruno Mars, Mary. You ever heard that song? It's a beautiful <laughs> night. I'm looking for something down to do. Hey, girl, I think I want to marry you. And it's like that song will always encapsulate one of the best nights of my life. Like that, that song of all songs, right? You know, and for whatever reason, we ended up partying to like seven in the morning. So we, we were on a Bruno Mars kick and Gorilla. Got a body full of liquor with a cocaine kicker. And I'm feeling like I'm 30 feet tall. And I just, I can remember the air in Vegas that night. How the air felt coming through the windows of her Camaro while listening to that song. You know what, does that make yeah, sense? Like absolutely. that's just... Those are, and I have so many moments like that that'll just stick with me forever. You know, in the moments of discovering new music, we were playing the Carolina Rebellion. How long ago, Mama? Six years ago? We just got together, right? And we're sitting in our trailer, smoking a joint and having a shot. And I hear something, and my best friend, Scary, my wife looks up, and my best friend, Scary Larry, goes, Is that Robert Plant? And I remember it's the first time I heard Greta Van Fleet. Oh, right. And I just remember watching a bunch of people that were walking away from the stage they were playing when they started playing their first song, turn around and run back to the stage. I remember the impact of people going, I don't know what this is, but this is different. You know, and I just remember discovering their music that day. Just moment. I have I can, we could talk about this for hours. Just moments I've had with music, you know, that have just fire and rain with me and my dad's favorite song together. Like James Taylor, to me, it's it's still in my top five songs. And he's a local hero for us up here. So yeah, oh really? Mm -hmm. He's from Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was fixing to say. Yeah, he's up that way. Where where are you at in Massachusetts? Just outside of Boston. So you know, I play Worcester. Uh, I'll be there April first at the Palladium. Yes, yes. Let's go. Cool. Awesome. Good. Palladium is a great venue. It's like the perfect side. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Like. Old theater, super cool vibe in there, and a place that is not afraid to have the loudest, heaviest of rock shows. Like, everybody's played there. Everybody's played it. Yeah, it's great. Did I said it right, right, too? Worcester? Worcester, yeah. Worcester. Yeah, Just take all, the, take all the unnecessary letters out of there. Yeah, yeah, Worcester. Yeah. I say it better than everybody else. I had a dude that opened up for us that night. The night we went on, we were like two or four. Or two of five. And the guy who was one of five went up there and said, Worcester, Massachusetts. And I remember them juggalos. Boo! (laughs) (laughs) They hate that. And because Worcester (laughs) is the second biggest city in the state, a lot of people go up on stage in Worcester and go, what's up, Boston? And they're like, fuck you, this is Worcester. <laughs> so the, the fact that you the fact that you say it right, you think your accent makes you sound like, you know, like a like a hillbilly or whatever. Well, we all yeah. sound like, you know, smart ass mass holes with our accent. Yeah. You know, it just yeah. is what it is. Yeah. I can't wait for you to meet him. One of my best friends, he's like he does security on tour for us, but we've been friends for like 16 years. And he's from Boston. 
he's so from Boston. He's from Cape Cod, but he's so from Boston that we call him Boston. When yeah. he first moved here 15 years ago, we call him Boston. And to this day, his name is Boston. Everybody that's, that's a transplant from here somewhere else, their name ends up Boston something or something yeah. Boston because yeah. we we don't we don't blend well. You know, it's like you could plop some people into a, a completely different situation and they'll like blend in. Bostonians just go, yeah, that's great, but that's not how we do it in Boston. Yeah, and I'm not Boston's changing, and I'm not going to like what you like, and fuck off if you try to make me. It's just no, that's totally Boston. And I got a neighbor here that's from, that's from uh, Boston too, and he's so Boston. And the funny part is, both of them have a real heavy accent, but when they drink, it gets crazy. Which I know I get a little more country when I drink, oh. but man, it is hilarious. Going to broadcasting school, yeah. Going to broadcasting school, I had to learn how to get rid of it, right? And right. so people that have heard me on the radio over the years, they're like, are you really from Boston? I'm like, two or three shots of tequila. And I'm like, you cocksucking motherfucker. <laughs> and they're like, oh, okay, there it is. There it is. Yeah. It's a unique thing. It's kind of like us down here. Look, get a little, get a little, get a little drink in, man. I, I get to where people have, my wife has to start translating. <laughs> <laughs> this is the sentence that I tell people that have other accents, especially somebody like yours. If you come up here and say, hurry up and make supper, you fucker, I'm wicked starving, let's have grinders, someone will yeah. bring you a sandwich. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, Instead and, of pardon me, ma'am, you got a sandwich over there? I'm a little, <laughs> little, little famished. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk about your songwriting process because unlike you, I don't have the ability to sit down and kind of articulate my feelings that way. And I am incredibly envious of the craft. So how does it start with you? Is it just a lyric thing? Is it a riff thing? Is it a note thing? Is it melody? What, where does the first idea come from? You know, the cool thing about music for me and writing it is every song starts different. Every one of them. Sometimes we'll go in the studio and maybe, maybe, maybe Jack or Casey had already made like a loop track, just like a basic drum track with a guitar loop. And they're like, does this strike anything? Sometimes I'll come in with a melody in my phone that I've heard in a dream or I've just been walking around whistling around the house. And I'll come in and have my little voice memo out with me doing the hum hall thing. When, hey, yo, we should build something around this. <laughs> or sometimes I'll walk in with song concepts. So I'll just come in with an idea for a song. It's like, hey, I'll use Dead Man Walking because it's, you know, it's unbelievable how well this record's being received. But I came in with this idea. I was like, yo, I want to write a record uh, called Dead Man Walking, but I want to make it more introspective and about lifestyle choices. And you know what I mean? How how that when you live that double life, you're kind of always one foot in the grave and one foot out, you know, but how do you write that more abstract? And I had the melody in my head, the dead man walking, I had it in my head and I just didn't know how to go from, from there. And then we, we penned it out. So all, every song has started different, you know, sometimes you just come in and pick up a guitar and start playing a minor chord, just the cowboy chords or Jack comes in and has a riff in his head. He's like, yo, check this riff out. Is this, you know, and then we'll just write like a country music session, just straight off a guitar. They all start different. 
So when you were in school and you're just writing these feelings and song ideas and like pitching them to your mom at the kitchen table, at what point did it go from that to you figuring out you could sing and playing guitar and and going, wait, I'm good at this? So I would, I got incarcerated. I don't know if you know this part of my story, but I had gotten in a little trouble when I was young and ended up wasting about a decade of my life from 15 to 25 in and out of the system, more time in than out. And one weird skill set I had picked up in there was the ability to take this pencil or pen here, but in there you're not allowed to have a pen, take this pencil and make a beat. Right. So I would, I could write to a beat in my head and, Right, and I'd have the beat in my head that way, and I'd do it with the pencil. So I'd come out and write them songs. I'd come out and rap them to everybody in the unit. Or even when I was home, I'd come down and rap it for my mom because we do it in school too. And I'd just rap it while I was making a beat on the table. And that's how that kind of started. And we found a place in town that would let us cut cut records at a studio that would charge us like thirty five dollars an hour right there and that right down the street from the neighborhood. And I'd pass out mixtapes in high school or middle school and high school, and then. It just kind of evolved. I, I would always do uh, harmonic hooks, but I, didn't, I was afraid to really sing. So, like, I would low register stuff. Like, I wake up every day, I hear my knees and pray. My mind is filled with pain. So many things have changed. It was like singing. Now that I look back at it, I was singing, but I was afraid to sing it how I would sing it now. Right. That because then it was so, you know, I don't know if that makes sense at all, but I was afraid to really open the vocal cord up. And now I belt it right. I, you know, I wake up every day. I hit my knees and pray. But I was afraid to try that then. So uh, we could be. And I did that for all my mixtapes, you know, and uh, I had a guy that was like, dude, you can sing. man. Just like really try. And we had got drunk and went and did karaoke one night. And he was like, just pick a song and sing it, whatever you think you can sing. And I think I picked like Seeger's Rock and Roll or something, you know, and I just like I rocked can, it. I can hear you singing Seeger. Right. Yeah. Which we do. You'll see. Spoiler alert. But yeah, you'll see during the show. We, we do a good medley. But a uh, huge Seeger fan. Favorite song of all time was Seeger song. Uh, Against the Winds, my favorite song of all time. For now. Subjects <laughs> change. But yeah. as of today, the last month I finally determined. I think that's my favorite song. But uh, and he was like, dude, you crushed it, man. You should start following that. And I was like, cool. And I was tired of going into Music Row writing rooms and being the only person that couldn't play the guitar at all. And I still can't really play the guitar. But I know that what they call the cowboy chords. You know, I can play the cowboy chords. Enough to enough that I can. If we're sitting around a campfire and your husband can't play the guitar and you can't play the guitar, then I can play the guitar. <laughs> but, you know, if somebody there can play the guitar, then we'll let them play the guitar. My husband's... <laughs> my husband's- trying to learn to play the guitar. He's in the military and he's been deployed for the last year and a half. And he brought a guitar with him and he was like, I'm going to come home from this deployment and I'm going to be a really good guitar player. He's, he's coming home in like two weeks and he can't play shit on the guitar. Dude, it's hard, man. You know what the hardest part of it is? Just doing it over and over again. Yeah. Just over and over, just hours. I love, I have such a respect for kids that just lock themselves in the room and play the guitar every day for hours, you know? 
my mind is not set up that way. Every guitar I'm, I'm player I've interviewed has said the same thing, that that's the hard part is is failing the million times before you finally, you know, as Zach Wilde said on the show recently, like you, then you finally can play along to Back in Black and go, wait a minute, I think I figured this out. Right, yeah. But it takes no, so long. So long. There's no instant gratification. I tell people, if you don't know how to play, if you don't know how to shoot basketball, never shot a basketball in your life, I can take you to a court, and within an hour and a half, you'll make a shot. I mean, if you've never shot a basketball in your life, if you've never hit a golf ball in your life, I'll take you to play 18 holes of golf, and you'll have at least one shot where you're like, man, I really got a hold to that one. You know, I, you've never thrown a football in your life. I can get you to throw a spiral in an hour. Never thrown a punch in your life. I can teach you a good right hand in a couple hours, at least a good one structured right. I, you, I sit down and hand you a guitar for two hours, and you're going to leave pissed off. You're and annoy everybody in the house. And mad. <laughs> You're going to leave after those two hours just absolutely. I still get pissed off at it. I still take lessons. I still have a guy come out of the house like once every two weeks and just kind of work with me and show me stuff. And I'm still just like, because I'm a, I never learned the theory of music. Music to me was more of a feeling than a theory. And I, I don't want to lose my feeling for music, but I'd like to know more about what's going on. And dude, it's just infuriating. Yeah. Nothing makes yeah. me madder than when he comes. He's like, well, it's like this. And I'm like, there had to have been an easier way for them to do this. This is the most backward shit I've ever seen in my fucking life. But it's, it's, it's my dude who plays the drums told me the drums are even worse. Oh, I bet. So you want to really get pissed off, try to play the drums. Well, because all four of your appendages have to do different shit. And then yeah. when you see someone like Hendrix playing the guitar or Neil Peart playing the drums and you just go, why would I even bother trying to start? No, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. For It'd be like waking up today, like, I think I want to be a pro basketball player. And then going and playing with some, like, just like 50-year-old men at the Y. And they just hoop on you, and you're like, yeah, I'm not going pro. It's not and, gonna well, and you wake up, and you're five feet tall. So you're already yeah. Yeah. disadvantaged. It's already against you, dude. No, it's rough. But I've learned at least enough that I can strum along if I have to, so. I, I watched a documentary during COVID. I, I went down this rabbit hole of documentaries and I watched this documentary, ironically, about Nashville called It All Starts With The Song. And it was all about the songwriting community in Nashville because, like I said, I didn't really know a lot about how that worked. And as someone that's as envious of the craft of songwriting as I am, one of the things that I think is the biggest hurdle that I would have to get over before I even attempted it is the trust fall of pouring your soul into something that someone else can just go, nah, that sucks. I would oh, yeah. stab that person in the face. How do you get over that? Because you have collaborated and worked with so many different artists over the years. You know what's crazy is that at least I'm blessed in this sense that as the artist, I'm willing to pick the hills I die on, where most songwriters are not. And that's why I struggle. I actually, me and my wife have been dealing with this for the last three days. I have a problem with some of the things that happen in Nashville songwriting. And they, one, they, they cap, creativity is capped, right? They won't let people be as creative as they can because they're writing for the format of radio. And Spotify doesn't pay songwriters the way it should, frankly. Um, and my side of that argument is you can't be mad at Spotify. We need to be mad at the record labels who own the lion's share of the money anyways. 
the record label should find a way. They got more than enough to share with the songwriters, you know? <clears throat> but it's like, imagine you don't have any control of what the song does. At least if I send a song into my, my, my label partner and they're like, I don't know. I go, yeah, I don't care. I like it. Well, we're putting it out. You know, at least I can choose to die on that hill. Songwriters can't. Right. Could you imagine knowing you wrote the best song of your life and sending it in for some dude to listen to it? Just maybe he's having a bad day or maybe he just heard a song of a similar concept from another writer in town because he's getting pitched a hundred songs a week. Right. You know, or maybe he's just like, yeah, nobody's looking for a song like this right now. You know how many good songs have died for that dumbass reason alone? When they just like you get a cheat sheet on Music Row, right? That's like these are the people that are working on albums. OK, and somebody goes, yeah, man, I think it's a great song, man. Just unfortunately, I think anybody who would cut it's not going to drop an album until, you know, next year. And then that song just gets buried in an archive somewhere. And as a songwriter, you wake up every day thinking, can we repitch that one incredible song? And they're just they're just over it. You know, they just already moved on. And then every now and then there's a special case of a song that's been around town four or five years that'll go that'll somehow resurface and the right person will cut it and make it a hit. And that's always like the little silent fuck you back to music row. You know what I mean? It's like, ha ha, you know, a songwriter. Just go, I knew that was a hit. I well, it's it. a weird situation because these explain and correct me if I'm wrong, obviously, but that songwriters kind of get put on retainers. So if they write that song and hand it in to their agent or label or whatever, it's not really theirs to control and pitch it to other people. Right. That's what you're talking about, that that song, even though they wrote it, they're kind of contractually obligated to let whoever it is on Music Row kind of control its destiny. Control its destiny. And then what's even deeper is you don't have no say over what the artist does with it when they get it. Right. So imagine you write this song in this spirit, in this context, and then your publisher, your song plugger picks it up and he pitches it to this artist. And this artist goes, yeah, I like it, but I want to I want to change the tempo, make it faster, change these three words. The artist changes three words and now he gets a piece of publishing on the fucking song. Right. Think about how fucked up that is. I could go on rants about how the songwriters in Nashville are robbed of their creativity. Well, for people that listen to the show, they don't understand how this works. I'm so glad you're talking about it, because I first of all. I think there's the misconception that if you're the one singing it, you're the one that wrote it. Almost never. And especially with a place like Nashville, that city is built on. And that's what was fascinating about this documentary, because I had no idea that uh, that writers would get together like a play date for your kids. And it's like, hey, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. And then you just write a song. Speed dating with a complete stranger. You sit down with two dudes you've never met in your life. The publishing company gives you three hours to write it. You're on a window. It's like having a management meeting or something. It's like clocking into a fucking job, which is my other problem. Me and my wife, literally, I just canceled a studio. I had a studio booked for this week down here. And I canceled the studio. It's actually called Sound Emporium Studios. I'm going to put them on blast because they fucking deserve it. The Sound Emporium Studios, where I've recorded almost every album I've done the last six years. Cowboy Jack Clemens started this studio, which was a real cowboy and a fucking outlaw. His famous quote was, we're in the fun business. If you're not having fun, you're in the wrong business. And they won't let me work nights. 
literally. A rela- I've had a relationship with the studio for six years. They will not let me work nights. I was willing to pay whatever money they wanted to work nights. They will not let us work nights. And another reason I work nights is because I don't believe in saying, listen, man, this is not a job. This is the coolest. This is the most. I would I argue that music is the most important form of entertainment in the world. Period. I agree with you. You know, listen, if they quit putting out movies and TV shows tomorrow, people will play video games. People will start playing Monopoly again. People will figure it out. I could not imagine a world without music. I can imagine a world without a lot of shit. I can imagine a world without circuses. I hope they stay around forever. But I can imagine a world without movies. I love them to death. Could not imagine a world without music. Well, it goes back in evolution. I mean, there's... It, it's it's part of our DNA that that rhythm based expression. It's how it's how tribes of humans pass their stories down. I mean, it's right. it's part of who we are as a, as a species. Could you imagine something that important? You have somebody else telling you as the creator that you have to create it between eleven and two. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> ridiculous. That's my argument. Especially you know when not, you're not a morning person. Like, I am not a morning person. I work in the music business. My husband, he's a Marine. Ask crack of dawn. Up, Reveille, let's get going. No coffee yeah. needed. And I just look at him and I'm like, how? Because I can't yeah. function that way. It's not the wiring of it. It's just, it, another thing, too, is that uh, what if you sit around there for three hours and two hours and 30 minutes into it, you finally start coming up with what could be the greatest song ever. What do y'all do? With this? Well, you know what you do? Everybody literally stands up like they're clocking out of a fucking factory. They're like, oh, sorry, boys. I made plans. I thought this thing would be over at three. I got to go get with the wife. They're, they could be writing fucking America, the next American pie, right? They could be writing fucking the next fire and rain. They could be writing the next that song. They could be writing the next my girl. And they're like, eh, well, just put it on hold. And next time we'll see what our schedules. Well, I have my publisher reach out to your publisher. My people will reach out to your people and we'll set it up and try it again later and finish this song. You know, like that is just fucking the it's we have allowed the people, the word mute, the music. This is the music business. And the word music comes before business for a reason. And we've allowed people to put business before music. And that is where we're fucking up. And that is the problem I have with that's why I'm so anti-establishment. That's why I take pride in owning my masters. That's why I take pride in owning 100 percent of my publishing. That's why I take pride in being the guy who writes on every song I've ever recorded in my life. I've never recorded a song that I didn't write. I have wrote songs with other writers because I am a huge fan of these writers. I, I love the idea of being a part of the songwriter community. And what I'm telling you is how 90% of the songwriting community feels. We have these talks and these, these sessions every day because I don't just go write Jelly Roll songs. I go write songs for everybody around town. I'll pull up and write with anybody. But I hate the, what they've done and how they've transformed it into something it shouldn't be. I hate that songwriters are treated the way that we are. I hate that we're the last. You know, another thing is you're the last person to know. You pitch a song to your publisher, that song gets picked up, gets demo, and gets cut, and then you find out. Sometimes you hear a song back that's like, you're like, dude, this dude ruined my song. But most of these dudes, you know, most of these dudes really desperately need a song cut by a big guy. So they're just like, 
they can't say anything and don't say nothing because you don't want to riffle no feathers around town, you know. God forbid somebody blackballs you. You know, Nashville, the the, the community of music is really small. Well, that's so why those those stories about like Dolly Parton and like the the rumor is that she wrote Jolene and and uh, <clears throat> and well the the famous Whitney Houston cover there. Um, I will always love you. That she wrote those songs in forty five minutes on the same day, and that. Elvis wanted to cover I Will Always Love You, but in order to cover it, he wanted the rights to it. And as an unknown, she said no to Elvis. Can you imagine, A, can you imagine if she cut that writing session short? And then, can you imagine if she had signed the rights to Elvis over and then Whitney Houston never covered that song? Never covered it. Ended up being one of the biggest songs ever. Ever. Insane. That's because Dolly Parton is a gangster. And that's also why Dolly Parton owns half of the town she's from in East Tennessee. Maybe three-fourths of it at this point. You know what I mean? And that's why her children, children, there's going to be five generations of kids who don't know anything about Dolly Parton, but what they hear, that'll be living off of her. (laughs) That's how, you know what I mean? Literally. Because of the decisions she made and her being bold enough to stand up and do it. And as and as There's, a woman in that business in that time, unheard of. I'll give you this, though. There's also the other side of those stories, too, where artists have done things to help songwriters. The guy who wrote the dance for Garth Brooks was singing it at the Bluebird one night. Garth heard it when he was an unknown guy and was like, hey, man, how long you had that song? So I've been pitching around town for, you know, a year. Just I love the song, but I just can't get it nowhere. Or however long you've been pitching it. And Garth goes. If I sign this record deal, I'm going to cut that song. You know, this is a drunk talk at a bar in Nashville. This is typical. This happens every night. I'm a part of them all the time. <laughs> and the guy goes, oh, man, I sure wish you would. Garth signs his first record deal, comes back, cuts the song, ends up being the biggest song Garth Brooks' career. And that writer hopefully got a nice chunk of change out of it. Of course, well, it depends on what deal he had behind the scenes. But, right. yeah. You know, it's he got a good chunk of change no matter what. It's just how much money he made other people in the process. Right. Because that's their trick. They bring you in and go, all right, man, we'll give you a 30,000, 36 grand a year to be our writer, two-year contract. But we own 50% of the publishing of every song you write for those two years. And then the average number one can make each songwriter anywhere from 180 grand to $500,000 per songwriter. You know, so a guy goes and gets his first number one. And he has to split a half a million dollars with the label after they recoup the $70,000 they gave him over the course of the two years of his deal. And it's, it's something that just like the Whitney Houston Dolly cover, right? That you could write a song and then, and then it could go away. And then in the most unlikely ways come back. And I bring it up because I saw a video of you on stage singing simple man with shinedown. Yes. Now that song, the first time they played it on the radio was on my show. And they really and they did the original recording of Simple Man was on my show back in twenty two thousand three, January two thousand four. And they didn't want to cover it. I have the audio of me talking Brent into doing it because they were so afraid that they were going to screw it up being from Jacksonville and, and disrespecting Skinner. And I was like, come on, just do it. And this version came out 
and it changed everything to the point to the point where a couple years ago they sold out the amphitheater here in front of like 28,000 people and they brought me up on stage and sang it in front of a sold out crowd and had the crowd sing it back to me and the only thing there is is all this video of me blubbering like a baby because it was like the most powerful thing and then I see you go up on stage singing it with them and I was like yes it was so good (laughs) It was so surreal, too, because the irony of life is and the circle of music is I had done an interview probably like a year ago, year and a half ago, when somebody had seen one of my covers and they were like, why don't you ever cover Simple Man? No, I did a question and answer on Instagram and Zach Myers had seen this. And I was like, have you ever seen in my answer? I said, have you ever seen Shinedown's Simple Man? I would never touch that song because of that. Like, I cannot hold a candle. There's no way I could ever do a version that would be anywhere competitive to to Brent Smith's version, you know, and Zach Meyer's version. And uh, then you fast forward and they asked me to sing it with them. And that's why that's why I was so crazy about doing it. I was like, it was such a full circle moment for me because how they felt about Skinner. You're like, I can't do that fucking Skinner. I, you know, I, I don't want to disrespect Skinner and fuck this up. I felt like that about fucking it up for Shinedown. You know what I mean? I was like, I can't do it. I can't do what they did with the record. It's like somebody trying to cover Hurt. Like Johnny Cash kind of took that off the table. Right. Exactly. Like, right. When nobody do can do it. And then Johnny comes in and crushes it. You yeah. Know? And then it's like, okay, yeah, that's just not an option for anyone to cover ever again. Ever again. Waste of time. I think you answered this question already, but I want to I wanna pose the question this way and see if your answer changes. Whenever I talk to songwriters, <laughs> I always ask them to give me an example or two of something they consider perfect songwriting. A song from any genre, any artist, anywhere that you just wish you wrote because for, for the art of songwriting, you covet it and you wish you wrote it because it's perfect. Did you already answer the question with the answer you gave me, or is your answer going to change based on your favorite song? Give me a few here. Can I do like two or three? Yeah, I want to, but, but you have to explain why they're good songwriting. Break down what, what the expertise is from your perspective. Fire and Rain is the first one that comes to mind. I love Against the Wind, but it's kind of obvious what it's about, you know? It's just a great storytelling song. Where Fire and Rain was left open for interpretation, And so many people have so many different theories on what this is about. To me, that's the beginning of incredible songwriting, right? Because when you leave something open for interpretation, it can touch so many people so many different ways than even you as the writer intended it to, right? And it's also the gift of taking something that felt, to me, that James had wrote something deeply personal there, right? but had somehow made it, wrote it in such a way that I felt as personal to it as he did, right? And um, when he tells the first verse about, the, you know, the, I made the plans for you. Uh, I woke up this morning, I wrote down this song. I just can't remember who to send it to. The, the whole idea of the fire and rain. But I think what sticks with me the most is the climax of each verse, right? Won't you look down upon me, Gene? You've got to help me take a hand. Um Lord knows just to see me through another day. My body's shaking and my time is at hand, right? I love the way he brought the hand in twice, but it was in two different parables. Like time being at hand and Jesus, won't you look down the palm of Jesus? Won't you help me take a stand? But uh, help me take a stand. But I think where he really got me was when he said, now there's a, uh, um, 
I've been walking my mind to an easy time, my back turned towards the sun. Lord knows when the cold wind blows, it'll turn your head around. That is, I can picture that, understand the simplicity of, I've been walking my mind to an easy time, my back turned to the sun. That cold wind blows, you want to turn back towards the sun, right? Now, there's hours of time on the telephone line to talk about things to come. Sweet dreams and flying machines and pieces on the ground. Insane songwriting. Like, everything about it checks every box I look for in a song. The riff moves me. The guitar piece moves me. The lyrics are so open-ended and just so painful. And so painful in a way you're still not sure what he's talking about. And James, being who he is, has gave a different answer every time he's ever talked about it, right? And in true James fashion, and you're he like, just wait continues. a minute, that's not what he said last time. Yeah, and you're just like, he just always leaves it kind of like you know, like whatever, you know, you figure it out. That's probably the first one that comes to mind for me of a song that like checks every single box, melody wise. And good vibe wise, me and my dude talk about this. My girl. Mm. Right? As far as just a song that encapsulates a vibe and the melody is just so there. You know what I mean? Uh comes right in. I got sunshine on a cloudy day. You know how you, you know? said that songs remind you of a place? My college roommate came back to the dorm one night, wasted from a party in Boston. Comes right. into the dorm room. We're all hanging out in there. Pulls her pants down and dances around the room singing that song. And every single time I hear that song to this day, I think about my college roommate. Oh, because dude, I can't right? help it. Because she's saying, I it's got sunshine. Yes. Right. Showing her ass right there. Yes. Hilarious. No, in a room full of girls same. just laughing. I love the melody chains. What can make me feel this way, my girl? Talking about my girl, my girl, right? Ooh, there's just everything about that song. In that same era, sitting on the dock of the bay, checks all the boxes. So good. Right. It checks all the boxes, melody, song style, uh, the story he's telling, you know, um, what uh, uh, I left my home in Georgia, headed for the Frisco Bay. I had nothing to live for. You know, my favorite part of that, though, my wife took me to see this oldies thing a few years ago. Uh, for my birthday at the Skirmerhorn up here, the Opry Place, and the guy who helped wrote that song with him and sang it. And my favorite part was watching 2,000 old people go. <laughs> right? It's like, even down to the whistle, everything about that song. These are the kind of songs. I have boxes to check for me in songs. Melody, either storytelling or lyrics, like... Uh, storytelling for the dock of the bay lyrics for the james taylor one right like actual meaning of a record um as cliche as it sounds the piano man by billy joel oh, so good little lines you know what my favorite thing about songwriting is when you have a line in a song that's incredible 
But if you have three or four lines in a song that are incredible, and that's what makes fire and rain dope. The hours of time, the telephone line, the, the back turns toward the sun. Uh, um, I woke up this morning, wrote down a song, couldn't remember who to send it to. All those are lines that are incredible. When Billy Joe says, they're all drinking a glass they call loneliness, but it's better than drinking alone. Dude, get the fuck out of here, right? It's like as a songwriter, you're like, I hate you for thinking of that. It's so, another thing about a songwriting I love is when somebody says something that's so obvious, but you never thought of. The simplicity of it. That comes up over and over again in these interviews. So that was so, why did I've wrote a thousand plus songs and never thought about, I'm drinking a glass they call loneliness, but it's better than drinking alone. You know, he just he checks the box with that Rocket Man by Elton John checks the boxes of songs that are just incredibly written. One, the song is written so good, but the melody is so strong that 90 percent of people don't know what he says anyways. Because <laughs> when he goes Rocket Man, right, most people don't know what he says, the coldest shit. But it's like you don't know because the melody is so good. But it's so, yeah, he almost outwrote him. He almost overwrote that song, which is a thing. But he didn't. He wrote it just perfect, but it was so close. With with Elton John, when I talked to Sully from Godsmack, we talked about the strange writing relationship between him and Bernie Taupin, which could you ever imagine having a writing relationship with someone the way Elton and Bernie do that, that one person strictly handles lyrics with no input from the other. And the other one strictly handles melody with no input from the other. They're not even in the same room. And those songs come out. It makes no sense. It's insane. That is just the next level nuts to me, especially not to be in the room and have, intake on it. I mean, could you just imagine going in there and humming and then passing it off to somebody and them coming back with top line lyrics to it? You're just like, oh, okay. Yeah, it's perfect, actually. You know, yeah. it's like, get out of here. That- yeah, I could, but anyways, I'll stop there, but I could I could literally nerd out about this. The storytelling of Against the Wind, I, it's personal to me how that song relates to my career. You know, when he says, you know, the young reckless reminds me of me and my wife. When we first got together, we were just just burning shit down. And and then the second verse, when he's just, you know, uh, the, the story of the road, every artist at some point in time has surrounded themselves with the wrong team. Most of the time yeah. you have a case where some artists like Brent, no, Brent's lucky. He's had the same team. We talked about it the other day from his whole career, but most artists I know have a story where they found themselves in a situation where they were as, as our friend Bob Seeger would put it surrounded by strangers. They thought were their friends and found themselves further and further from their home, you know? And I, as an artist went through that in 2017, I had to fire a bunch of people and, change managements and just had to go through really brutal breakup. It got really dirty and nasty and ugly and just one of the hardest times of my whole life. And that song just carried me through that. So I was like, Bob must have went through this too. He sure wrote about it. That, but, oh, go ahead. Yeah. But then my favorite part is the end of it. The resolve to the record is where I'm at in my career. Now those drifter days are past me. Now I have so much more to think about deadlines and commitments, what to leave in what to leave out. It's just, it's the epitome of where I'm at in my career right now. Like I love where I'm at and I'm so blessed to be where we are, but them drifter days, unfortunately are behind me. I miss them. 
you know, I still kind of long for that, just kind of being lost and just lost in it, you know. Now it's, you know, deadlines and commitments. You got to turn this in and have this right. And what instrument stays and what instrument goes out. When we were first kids writing songs and we didn't give a fuck. You know what I'm saying? It's like none of that mattered, you know. But So I don't know. It just touches me deeply. But do, do you think, like, I just talked to Aaron Jones about this last week, that as an independent artist for a lo- as long as he was, he felt like, that decade as an indie artist able to kind of figure out what he wanted to say, how he wanted to say it, the ability to make mistakes and really be in a place to be able to handle the success that is coming at him now, as opposed to being a brand new green artist that just hits with their song, gets shot out of a cannon and becomes collateral damage. Do you think with all of this new success that you're finding right now that all of that stuff that you've gone through in the last 10 years has has made you perfectly suited to kind of handle these new pressures that are coming for you? Oh, absolutely. But more than anything, it's gave me the time to build a real family. So it's like my I don't my fans are not like fans. It's not this isn't casual listening. People who listen to me, listen, that they, you know, this is ride or die. This isn't, you know, this is a, it's really, you know, we were talking, I was talking to my radio team a minute ago because I just cannot believe how crazy the song's going on radio. And uh, he said, getting ready to crack the top 10. It's getting ready to crack the top 10, dude. It's like crazy. And I was telling him, you know, he was like, listen, I want you to know that, you know, he was telling me about strategy and stuff. I don't understand, to be honest, but he was like, you know, we want this record to, we want it to get into the top 10, but we want to take our time. We want to enjoy every slot we're at, and, you know, really build something. Because he said, you want something? He, he used Sully and them, for example. He's like, you know, the last record I worked for them, whichever record it was, he said, you know, we had four singles on there. Every one of them went gold. Every one of them stayed in the top 10 for X amount of weeks. You know, he said, we're building something sustainable here. And that is what I understood. Because I know so many artists, like you said, that get shot out of a cannon, go get a number one, have a big song on TikTok, and can't sell 300 tickets. And, and can't top that success next time around. Mm-mm, no, for sure. But it's like, for me, it was that. I think, I think, yeah, no, this is even down to being in creative control. Because if I wouldn't have built the career I built, I would have never had the creative control I have in my, my situation now. I would have never been able to go to the label and say, hey, man, this is the song we're putting out. I, don't, I didn't turn in a bunch of songs and let the label pick my album. I turn in bodies of work and go, this is the album. You know, I own the masters of this record. You don't, I want your opinion. And I love that I have a label that listens to me and cares and we have good dialogue. But they also know, I don't care what your opinion is. I I can sing this with conviction. And that's the most important thing for me is to be able to put out songs that I can sing with absolute conviction. Because I also know a lot of artists who got shot out of the cannon that sing a song every night they hate. You know? Chris Daughtry talked about that. Yeah. Just, that, I that just after couldn't. coming out of American Idol, they tried to make him an artist that he didn't want to be. Lilith Czar said yeah. the same thing. They tried to make her a, a pop singer. And she's like, have you not heard my voice? This is not a pop voice. This is a rock voice. Yeah, for sure. No, it's like, let me, you know, let me build this the way that we want to build it. Yeah, no, everything about, I still move like an independent artist is the best part. My label and me, we have a situation where, you know, I can't get into the details of it, but yeah. You know, we still own our shit. We still stay, we still maintain our independence. And the cool thing about that is 
the coolest thing about BMG when they came to me, Jonathan Loeb had changed my whole life. I love this man forever and a decade because of him taking a chance on me. But he said, look, man, I don't want to change the rocket ship you're in. I just want to add fuel. And I was like, that's a good quote. He's, you know what I mean? Literally, he's like, I don't I don't want to change cars. You, you got a car. This 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 ship's going to go. Let me put let me put some rock. Let me put some fuel in it. Let me help with that. Let me really give you some direction and set a course here and put the fuel in. You're in control of the ship. And I'm like, dude, this is awesome. So it helped me with that. I think when I referenced the drifter days, it was more about, you know, before before we had before we had full custody of our daughter. Right. Before, you know. uh, Yeah, I think before we had to, quote unquote, settle down. Yeah. Right. I just kind of still miss those drifter days. Me and my wife joke all the time that if we wasn't married with a kid, we would probably have three apartments in three different cities. You know what I'm saying? You know what I mean? Well, you got out of Vegas, both of you. So random that you were both from Nashville and met in Vegas. Well, she's from Vegas. Well, she she gets mad when I say that. She was born in Texas, grew up in Vegas. I'm from Nashville. So I ended up in Vegas with her because that's more of her territory. Yeah. And then I drug her back to Nashville. (laughs) That's love. (laughs) Shit, that's love because she came kicking and screaming. I tell you. When I say I drug my wife to Nashville, I mean drug her. <laughs> she's still, she's every year she sends me houses and goes, What about this for a summer house? And I'm like, Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Six years later, you're still trying to leave. Yep. Well, when people have the conversation, which seems to happen a lot, about rock being dead. Like Jonathan Davis and I were just joking about it because he and I did an interview about it in 1999 that rock was dead then. And when people talk to me about, well, well, give me an example of artists that are doing anything new that are that are, you know, where's the future of rock? Where, Where is it? And there are artists that come up in that conversation. Aaron Jones comes up in that conversation. Dirty Honey comes up in that conversation. Greta Van Fleet that you talked about comes up in that conversation. You come up in that conversation now as being, yeah, (laughs) as being this future of rock music, which for a hip hop guy from Nashville, that's a long way from home. Oh, dude, this is the only thing that could be more ironic about this whole thing is if my name was Slim Willie. (laughs) 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 That's the only thing that could have been more ironic. You know, it just, it feels natural, man. It feels right. It, uh, I love what I'm doing. I love that it's being received. Uh, sometimes when you don't come to the dance with nobody, you just got to hope somebody puts their hand out. You know, that's the rule in life, right? You either yeah. dance with who you came with or dance with who puts their hand out. And I was blessed that rock music didn't think twice. They just put their hand straight out, you know? And, um, and it's a weird community, right? That rock rock fans are loyal to the core, passionate, will like you said, ride or die, that once they love you, they love you forever. Yeah. And I'm blessed that I did it with keeping the integrity of myself and people knowing that I'm um, I'm an old country fucker. You know, so that never got lost in translation either. And that's what's cool. That's why guys like your husband will still bang the music, you know, because I never even though it's clearly rock, they know that that, that boy's an old Southern boy. And, you, you know, I tell people by default, if I sing the, you know, Amazing Grace, it's going to sound just a little twangy. 
Yeah. I can't change that. You know what I mean? And yeah. that's been cool too. You talk but funny. It's think, not your fault. Yeah, it's just how I talk. <laughs> it's just, but I also say it's like we need a, I think the music I bring to has got a little Southern rock flair to it at times. And I think that's something that's been missing in the game badly. Yeah. And I think that's why bands like Whiskey Myers do so well, you know, because people have kind of missed that old Muscle Shoals and, you know, everything that we're doing right now is nostalgic. Nothing new is under the sun. So I always tip my hat to the ones that came before us, you know, and I think what we're doing right now is very nostalgic of a lot of different eras in music. I think that's why punk pop's coming back so big right now. I think people kind of miss that. And that's why, you know, MGK and Swaco are able to fill these voids of that kind of old sound that people were kind of missing, you know? And I think in this weird way, I kind of take people back to a different time and, it's a little bit of so many different things combined. It's familiar in different ways to everybody. That's what's cool. Well, and everybody has a lot of feelings about a lot of things right now. Mm-hmm. And, and if you're, <laughs> and if you're, you're, you know, isolated the way that we all have been, and you're trying to figure out big questions that we all have been, and then you hear something that you relate with, that's the beauty of it. That's it. That's it. It's a, we're we're in a unique time. I told people when this pandemic first started, I said careers will be made and careers will fade. This will be the telltale for a lot of artists. This is going to be, you know, this is when the machine quits working. What artists become the machine will be determined. And I think that's why we've seen a big transition in music right now, too. Well, and I'm glad that the shows are getting scheduled now because I think for for rock fans, the inability to get together and share that live experience was really hard for us because we are the outcasts. I call us the land of misfit toys that nobody else claimed us, so we made our own club and, and made it a place where we didn't want you anyway. We're cool with just hanging out with ourselves. And yep. not being able to get together at shows has been hard for all of us. I know it took away the community part of the music and that's such a big part. Yeah. It's been good to see it back though. Rockville was the last festival we played last year in November and it was really cool to see it kind of back. It was in Florida too. So, you know, they don't give a shit. <laughs> so it was wide open, you know, so yeah. it was really cool to see that back. And I, we're glad to be back on the road too. And I hate what this pandemic's done to people as far as, you know, I, I am empathetic of everybody who's lost somebody they loved or, everybody who's been through something with this, but, you know, sadly we've got to figure out a way for life to continue to move forward. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of questions. It's a, it's, and, and nobody, nobody knows about all of it because we don't, we don't know what the repercussions are going to be of the isolation, the mental health crisis, the drugs, the accidental overdoses, all of this other stuff. That's a byproduct of it. There's, there's no way to escape suffering in some way, shape or form. There's no way to figure out what this really is. And it's time, it's time for us to move on. And the reality was my doctor told me this a year ago, cause I'm obviously high risk. You probably wouldn't believe that, but yeah, I check all the boxes for a high risk guy. And my doctor said, listen, man, this isn't a, if it's a win for everybody. It's not a, if you get this virus, it's when you get this virus, you know? And he probably told me that a year and a half ago. And that was the day that I called my booking agent and was like, I don't care if we're the first people to go back or not. I'm ready to go. 
know, we were one of the first bands back, you know, because I was just like, look, man, I trust my guy. My guy don't lie to me. My guy already told me, I'm, brother, I sit, brother, I'm the boy in the bubble or the boy at the bar. We're getting this shit. You know what I'm saying? He's like, I was like, we might as well go. And ironically, I went two full years of a pandemic and didn't get it until a month ago. I know. I when I was when I was talking to all your people about your all your people about schedule <laughs> in this interview, they were like, "Yeah, he's recovering," and I was like, "Oh no!" But you're good. Yeah. I'm great. The hardest part was believe scary part for me was my voice was really scratchy for like three weeks afterwards. I coughed so much. Yeah. That scared me because, you know, man, this thing means the world to me. I just finally found my voice. Fuck, don't take it now. Well, that's what Wolfgang Van Halen said. He was like, I'm not worried about dying. I'm worried about never being able to sing again. Yeah, no, it was the scary part. But it was crazy because it came through my house twice before it got me. I never quarantined. My wife had it the first time I took care of her, slept in the bed every night, toured. I did meet and greets every night. I didn't change anything. I mean, I literally just rocked on as normal, you know? And um, just came up the, the, the I tell people, I think it's because I quit, I, I slowed my drinking down. When I was drinking every day on tour, never had a problem, not once. Came home, started working out, eating right, trying to lose weight for the next tour. That'll teach you. <laughs> Picked up the COVID. Yeah, I'll never quit drinking again. <laughs> <laughs> but I was cool. I just had like a week where I just felt like real shit. And then a couple of weeks where I just couldn't, I, I just, the problem I was having with doing stuff was, I just didn't sound right, you know? Yeah. But I had a couple of interviews in the middle of it, but I just sound like shit. I'm just now starting to cut scratch vocals again, so I'm starting to feel good. It's coming back. Well, I can't wait to meet you in person April 1st at the Palladium. Yes. Can't wait to see the band. Can't wait to finally be able to hear the songs live because I have not been able to see you live yet, so I'm really looking forward to it. I'm excited, man. It's an emotional experience. It is a totally different thing. You know, my show is a rock and roll show mixed with a little hip hop, mixed with a little country. And more than anything, it is nostalgic of a back road Southern Baptist tent revival. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I think that's the coolest part of my show for me. Well, take you it know? easy on the Yankees up here, okay? Oh, dude, and they love me, man. I love me up there, man. I love them. <laughs> Just like I'm fascinated every time Boston gets drunk and says, yeah, I'll go get the car. He loves it anytime I say anything. <laughs> so, 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 no, we're going to have a good time. I'm excited to see you and meet you. The family will be out with me, so it'll be fun. Awesome. Are you still doing are you still doing that East Coast run, Mama? Are you still coming to the East Coast run with us? Yeah, yeah my wife will be there and probably our kid, probably our daughter. Awesome. They want to come. East Coast, they want to spend a couple of days in New York City. Well, hopefully it'll be a little warmer than it is right now. We had our first day where it was 70 out here today, and it was fire. Oh, yeah. Today, I think it was 12. So, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, hopefully by the time you get here, it'll be a little bit warmer. But I can't wait to see the show. I, I was hoping that you were going to be as awesome as I thought you would be, and... You did not disappoint. So thank you so much for the generosity of your time. I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for your patience with me, too. And we'll do it any and every time. I appreciate it. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day. And I'll see you yes, in ma'am. like a month. Month and yes, a half. Yes, ma'am. Thank you very much, Miss Carrie. There he is, the one and only Jelly Roll. And I swear I could sit and talk about music with him for hours. If you want to get to know Jelly Roll better, all of the links for his website and social media accounts are all linked in the show notes of this podcast. 
There is also a link to the corresponding playlist as well. Every full-length episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast has its own playlist that is filled not only with the artist music, but all of the music from all the artists that we talked about in the interview. There's also a link so you can get tickets to go and see them on April 1st at the Palladium in Worcester. And all of my links are there as well. Thanks once again to our sponsor, Digital Federal Credit Union. You can find them online at dcu.org. And huge thanks to everyone that has a Mistress Carrie backstage pass. You can get yours on Patreon. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday. Plus, every weekday, you get the sit rep, which is all your rock news, music headlines, and industry info in less than five minutes. And you can join me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern for my video show, Cocktails in the War Room, on my Facebook page. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.